Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, and experience from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Nancy Giardano. Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm honored to be part. Allow me to introduce Nancy. If if I did my research correctly, you have a background in marketing, advertising agencies. You're the founder of Big Play. You're recognized as one of the top futurists presenting in over 100 keynote uh, talks around the globe. You launched your first book in February called Leadering, which we'll talk about during uh, this interview. And also the fact that you are the first TEDx licensee in the world and you live and work in Austin, Texas. Am I right? Yes, it's play big. I don't know why everyone always reverses those two words, but it's play big ink. Okay, maybe unconsciously. But... No, 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 I, and you're not the only one. Everyone does it. We cannot figure out like where that mistake is somewhere in the pipeline. <laughs> it's so funny. Okay, something to explore later. Let me ask you a question. Uh, when I was reading up on your background, I really like the fact that in your LinkedIn profile, you included your elementary school with a smiley. <laughs> and I was just wondering, is this a hidden joke, fond memories, or a significant influence? You know what? I think it was a little bit of a, I think it was twofold, honestly. It was a while ago that I did that. But I think one of it was a little bit of poking fun at how serious we all are when we put together these LinkedIn profiles and we bluster about all these extraordinary accomplishments and all these educational things, right? And I was just sort of like, you know, sort of, if we, okay, if we really want to know every single thing that we've ever done, I'm going to go all the way down to my elementary school. So I did it kind of as a wink, but it also is um, the, uh, interestingly enough, that one of my very first crushes in the, when I was a kid in elementary school at Henderson Elementary is the current CMO of Delta Airlines, Tim Mapes. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, uh, I mean, and we're still connected, you know, a zillion years later. And so I think it's funny to know that you might meet the person that, you know, can be really influential in the world, even in elementary school someday. Uh, very, very true. Um, so no, now, now I've got an answer to the the smiley where that comes from. And uh, okay, I'll agree with you. By the way, we're sometimes we're way too serious. Um, is that by the reason why you call it play big, not work big, but play big? No, play big. Well, I think it's less about like being playful, but I think it's really about like fully showing up, you know, so it's not just about a dimension of your work or a dimension of this or just living big. It's literally about showing up on the planet, like the way that you do everything that you do, right? The way that you play uh, okay. on the planet. And so I think it's less about the, the, the I don't want to say frivolous side, but the, you know, the entertainment side, I just think it's how you show up, you know, it's the way you play. Okay. Now, when did you found uh, the company? You know, so I was, I did have a background in extraordinary yeah. advertising agencies, right? I got to work for some of the best in the country and launch wonderful brands around it. But then when the internet really uh, took hold and we realized that it was going to change the way in which we made decisions, I felt yeah. as though the industry really wasn't prepared enough for it. And I felt like brands weren't prepared enough for it. They were really thinking that, again, a big splashy ad campaign was going to define what the brand was. And instead, it was going to be all these other attributes and values. We were going to look more deeply into the choices that we made and want to understand who the company is that we're doing business with. And so I wanted to be a part of that solution. And so I was able to start a consultancy inside the last agency that I worked uh, a part of that was able to sort of pilot that a little bit uh, with my brand and trend. But uh, then I just took it out of my own. So I think I started in 2007. Okay. So and the other well, the other thing that I will say that's just interesting when you talk about the brand called you, I also was at a moment, I was a single um, breadwinner in my household. 
And I felt very insecure being part of an industry that wasn't really prepared enough for the future. And I thought at any moment I could get let go. And that felt really, really scary to me. And so I felt like I was more secure if I went out on my own and built what it is that I felt like I could see that the world needed, if that made sense, or that businesses needed. Yeah. So it's an interesting okay. twist, but where are we actually more secure? We're inside, we always think we're secure inside organizations. But if those organizations aren't prepared for the transformation that is needed, we're actually not more secure. And we're seeing that all over the place right now, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that this idea that you can take agency of your own career and your own ideas and the life that you want to live and realize that you can be more secure that way was actually what drove me to start my own. So you just fired yourself from a job, but then also realizing it doesn't really matter if you're on your own or working for a company, um, that that's not what. Uh, make something sustainable. No, not at all. If okay. anything, like I say, I felt more secure out of my own than I did inside a structure that I didn't have control over. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a very good lesson for the the listeners and the viewers out there who, uh, if if you don't want to make that decision, actually your advice is uh, go ahead if you feel that that's going to be right for you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot about is reframing risk, rethinking risk, right? So, so many of the things that we think kept us safe in the past are often the things that are creating vulnerability into the future. And so I think, again, being part of a legacy industry that may or may not be prepared for the future often isn't prepared for the future. It doesn't necessarily keep you safer mm -hmm. than going out on your own or going to something that is new and is more transformative. So for me, uh, it was it felt much more secure to do it outside and on my own. Okay. Uh, and uh, are you still on your own or are there more, do you now employ more people? Well, I have two people who work for me full-time or work with me full-time. So we're a little company of three, yeah. but the way that we also talk about it, if we take on bigger consulting projects, we often need more people to be part mm -hmm. of it. Uh, and uh, we bring them in. So we have a vast network of people we call them pinkers, people you need to know mm -hmm. who we pull in for various uh, projects and things that we do. And the way we describe it is the future is fluid. And so are our teams. Right. You don't know what kind of talent you need to work with or pull in. And I do think that is the future of work. We're going to be much more fluid in that. We're going to have these ecosystems of, uh, of, of talent and experience and, and ability to have time. Right. And everyone's going to want to work full time on every single thing. We're going to have people who are part time here and full time here and just for a period of time here versus for a longer tenure here. All of that is going to be rethought and more tenured. And we just work that way. Okay, so if that's going to be the future, uh, it's going to be much more agile, uh, much more flexible. Um, how do you then uh, ensure for consistent service or is that an old concept? I think it's an old concept. I think congruency, you know, I always talk about the difference between congruency versus yeah. consistency. Consistency was this idea that we're going to scale brands and everything yeah. is going to be delivered exactly the same way, regardless of context. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we're much more around the fact that we are really clear about what we do well, what we don't do well, what we stand for, what the projects are that we take on. But every single one we take on is a completely new thing that we're figuring out. Yeah. It's not like we have a template that we just keep cookie-cuttering along yeah. the way. It's very bespoke. And so I think that if you really talk about being agile, it's about being able to sense and respond, right? Mm -hmm. And so everything that we do has a new series of things that we need to re, you know, uh, sense and, and learn and take in. And we have a body of work that we're building it on right and expertise that we're bringing yeah. on that people come to um but it is much more about finding unique solutions and so we're we're fresh start each time okay uh now i also read uh on your website that we help visionary leaders play bigger yeah. uh, is that what it's all about 
Yeah, you know, it took us a long time to sort of sort out where we really fit into this yeah. ecosystem. And really what we realized is that there are visionary leaders out there, right? Usually they're either CEOs of an organization or some sort of C-suite leader or division business unit leader who can sense that things are shifting and changing, but they either don't have a full context of it yet, or they're trying to inspire their teams to get there. And so okay. they, those are the ones that we can come in and we can really expand the vision and flesh out what it is that they're sensing and feeling by building the actual framing around that. Uh, but to try and do it with people who have absolutely no sense that things are shifting, right? Like whatever the opposite of visionary would be, right? Entrenched, uh, you know, recalcitrant leader. It's really hard to work with. Like that. that is not where we're not as good at that. We're okay. good at would you still call those people a leader then? Or aren't they just a, a, a manager or a director? Uh, you know, am I think they're, they're managing, but they're obviously, you know, sometimes they actually are, they're still responsible for tremendous resources, right? But they're managing to a stock price or they're managing to, uh, you know, a very secure kind of way of looking at things and aren't looking at the horizon. So you could argue that they're still leading, yeah. right? But they're not leadering, which will be the distinction okay. that we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, they're managing for consistency and for short-term profitability and for uh, a different set of, of um, outcomes then I am trying to help leaders who are, I think are visionary and are trying to play bigger. When we, that's what we mean by play bigger, right? Is really looking at the full impact that they can play with all their resources and looking at the full stakeholder uh, portfolio of those stakeholder, whatever you want, universe that they want to serve, but also across time, right? One of the stakeholders is the future. It's future generations. Yeah. It's all that. So anybody who can really look at it that way are people who uh, we love to go and work with and play with. Okay, now assume the following. Uh, you're going to get a phone call, an email. Can you come to the office? Because I, th I think we need your service. The minute you walk into the room of that individual who give you a call, when are you going to determine if it's a visionary leader or a leader in the other category you just remembered? How long does it take? Uh, usually before we get into the office. Right. It's usually yeah. not uh, even that. I will say I, one of my favorite stories actually is uh, I won't give away the company, but there was an executive at a, one of the largest beverage companies in the world mm -hmm. who called and asked if we could work on a particular project. And it was something that I didn't necessarily believe in the brand. And I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm the right fit for this because we just literally worked with another company in the restaurant industry. And we actually talked them out of your product because we didn't think your product was holding people well. Right. I was oops, sorry about that. But um, and uh, and we ended up in a really spiritual dialogue. He's like, well, what if I was able to convince you that blah, blah, X, Y, Z? And I'm like, you know, I'm really open to learning more about X, Y, Z. If you're also open to learning about ABC. And we had this really wonderful conversation and we decided to do, do work together. Um, and so I think it's one of these people that if you challenge them, they aren't threatened, they aren't defensive, they don't immediately shut down, they're willing to look at things from a different perspective. I'm really open-minded, I'm willing to look at things from a different perspective. They respect me enough to want to educate me on that, I'm open to. So I think it's really, you can tell very early on in a conversation yeah. whether or not someone has that posture or this posture. Yeah. And what we really want are the people who have the open posture and are willing to, uh, and, and, and enough confidence to be, I don't know, challenged is the right word, but to be, um, to give in a different point of view and not be, you know, okay, but what, does this also mean that you would walk away from something if it doesn't feel like, uh, feel right? For sure. We do that all the time. We definitely don't say yes to everything. Right. And, and actually one of my other, the, another beverage company uh, asked me if I could help, you know, create, you know, the newest, greatest, whatever the soda is that they want. And I'm like, you know, that's not the highest and best use of our time and energy. If you want to create the soda of the future, would love to go do that. Like yeah. there's, I, I really do think that there's a way that we could redesign something that people could enjoy and be healthy in mm -hmm. drinking 
but that wasn't the quest. And she's like, I totally hear you. That's not what this assignment is. I'm going to come back to you for the next one. I'm like, great. Right. Because I do think the work we do is really powerful for it. I really think that it's yeah. meaningful. And so you want to put it against the thing that you think makes you know the world better and holds okay. people yeah. well. That's one thing I always talk about is holding people well, making sure that they feel well taken care of with any of the product and services okay. that we put our time and energy against. And uh, what is this a rule you would uh, would you advise that anybody and everybody listening to this would use that same rule? If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't. Yeah, I mean, you have to figure out what your criteria is, right? I mean, we've worked with, you know, fast food companies, we've worked with petroleum companies, we've worked with whoever the, the company is, but it's a company that's willing to look at how to do this in a more, again, effective way or healthier way, not so much effective, but really like, how can we improve the service or the product or whatever? This is why, again, we're going to talk hopefully a little bit about artificial intelligence. I love AI. I'm a mm -hmm. giant champion of AI, but doing AI in a way or, you know, uh, producing it in a way that um, holds people well, that takes into consideration all the, the challenges around it. Uh, the rule you just mentioned, is that the rule anybody, everybody should follow and could follow? So you can you should walk away if it doesn't feel good. Yeah, I mean, I think feel good is, you know, may sound a little too soft. I think it's really being clear about what it is that you believe matters and building and ensuring that whatever you uh, put your mind and energy to aligns with that. So I do think that it's being consistent and whatever those words are congruent um, so that you're this back to your brand called you. I'm really intrigued you know, by the name of this. You stand for something and that standing for something has got to be really clear to others. Uh, we talk a lot about that. We're not hunters, but we're, we're lighthouses. We're beacons, right? When people are looking for something, they can trust us. And it's interesting what those little cues are that you, that, you know, that you send out that people can pick up on. It's the signals are actually quite um, uh, nuanced, but when you're consistent with that, when you're, you're always building from a place in which you know what you believe matters, uh, it radiates something that is very, very trustworthy to people. And so I do think building that, getting really clear about what matters to you and then aligning your resources against that is really the key. And would it also be not only be, make it clear for yourself, but also be vocal to your community, uh, your environment. So you can call me for those questions, but forget about those questions because they're not for me. Yes, and although I think that, again, I just love any of the questions that come to me and then I can help decipher. Because, again, if I made it sound as though I look at I, I really want to build a healthy, you know, safe and thriving future for anyone. That means that maybe, you know, a fast food company might not come to me or mm -hmm. a petroleum company might not come to me or a certain technology company yeah. might come to me. The reality is we could actually have a really powerful conversation in which we take those resources and we shift it. Right. So I don't necessarily like rule out anything until you can talk to whether or not you've got a visionary yeah. leader who okay. wants to that, play. Big. That's good advice uh, to the audience out there to realize, OK, sometimes just you have to listen and see what's actually on the table. Okay. Now, yeah. uh, Nancy, you've presented in over 100 keynote talks. That's quite a lot. Uh, is there a common theme, a thread uh, in those talks? Yeah, I mean, they definitely have evolved over time. You know, it's funny, there are a couple of slides that I still use that I've used for years. And you're like, gosh, should I, you know, I should be advanced and not yeah. uh, keep using that old slide. But it's really, we're still in some of our thinking still rooted there, right? And in, in a basic understanding of certain things, like we're demanding more and we're willing to give less and what those words mean really do change over time. So there's certain key pieces that I think are tent poles in it. But um, it, the constant theme is that we're in an extraordinary moment. We get to go create the future that we want to go create. How you tell that story 
differs over time depending on the industry that you're talking to or um, you know whether or not they need to be convinced of this versus ready to go do that. Like one of the things I really uh, I try and um, get a temperature check for with every audience that I go to speak to is like, are they leaning in and they're yeah. ready? Or are yeah. they still leaning back and need to be convinced? And so the story, you know, gets calibrated to ensure that we are meeting people where they are so that we can expand capacity. If you are too redundant with what they already know, they're bored. If you go too far out, they dismiss you as being irrelevant or way too far out there. So what you're really trying to find is that sweet spot, right? Which is where are they right now in a place that I can then go open it up. Uh, this is actually one of the questions, answer to the question, how do you prepare for your talks? And so how do you figure that out? How do you get to know your audience? You know, in the early days when I was doing this, I actually asked to interview three to five people that would be part of the audience that I'd yeah. be speaking to. And I did that for a long time. But then you start realizing the question, the, the patterns were over and over and over again. And, you know, part of what my work is, is pattern recognition. And so it was like, how much data do you need to collect until you can see that you, you kind of know where you're headed? Um, and so it started becoming redundant to do those conversations. And, uh, so we stopped doing them. Um, and so now I get briefed by the organization that wants me to, you know, invited me to come and speak with their group. And again, they think they're always telling me something that I have never heard before. And literally sometimes using the exact same metaphor, right? I literally in one day I had a call in the morning with a call, a client that was telling me that they're trying to like build the race car while they're driving it. Okay. In the afternoon, the client was trying to tell me they're building the plane while they're flying it. <laughs> Like, you know, and uh, so I look like a genius because it looks as though I can finish their sentences and I can tell them what the next thought's going to be and I can commiserate with them, you know, very empathetically on what it is that they're trying to do. But it's just because I'm privileged to hear so many conversations around oh, the world. Yeah. In which but, people are working but, on the same thing. But at the same time, it also proves you've made your 10,000 hours uh, <laughs> right. with Malcolm Gladwell. So you know what you're talking about. So. I mean, yeah, I mean, you try and stay, you know, you try not to be, I think the key then is not to feel as though you know it all mm -hmm. um, and really just still stay open with where people yeah. are. And so I'm, what I'm really paying attention to these days is where are they in this transition? Again, I, I talked about whether they're leaning in or, or not, but there's even more than that. Like how prepared are they already, you know, uh, started to be? What are the infrastructures they built inside their organizations? What are the ways in which they're managing talent? What are the ways in which they're using various technologies? Like kind of getting a sense of it because you don't want to, again, assume everyone is in the same place around that. Um, and, and I'm learning, right? That people are, 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 are feeling more confident about this, but still not quite, you know, ready for that. And so I'm always trying to calibrate where folks are. So I still think I listen well but I don't need to do quite as many interviews to get there. Okay, but that's then the, that's the experience uh, which uh, you can benefit from. Yeah. Okay. Now, before we're going to go into leadering, just one small sidestep I want to discuss. You are the very first TEDx licensee in the world. That's amazing. How did that happen? I mean, and yeah, you're talking huge. to a fellow TEDx licensee, uh, but I got in the game years later. So I went to my first, you know, at the time, uh, the TED had two events. They had the big event in Long Beach, then they moved to Vancouver. And then they had another one that was a satellite event that was in Palm Springs. And it was called TED Active. Um, and uh, I went to one of the first or second of those events. And it was really great to see, you could have a simulcast event, right? You could see all the same talks that were on the main TED stage, but you saw them on a screen as opposed to live. And being an audience of people with a shared interest and curiosities and all these amazing things. And so I loved that experience. It was such an amazing experience. But the people that I met were from London. They were from Australia. They were from Amsterdam. They were from all over the world. And it's just hard to keep those connections going, right? We really loved meeting each other and, yeah. and, and envisioning the future together, but it's just too hard. And I thought, God, how could I bring this back to my community? Like, I want to do this with the people that I work with and I play with and I plot with, 
you know, every day so that we could build something more meaningful and more sustainable over time. And so I asked Ted if I could do the same kind of simulcast that they had at the time in Palm Springs in Austin, because Austin was a pretty up and coming city yeah. at that point. Yeah. I felt like I had a pretty good pitch that I could make that Austin would be the next good place to do another simulcast event. And they said, as a matter of fact, we're considering this program called TEDx. Would you be interested in taking it on and, and sort of experimenting with us? And so Laura Stein was the one who built the framing for this at the time. And I got a chance to work with her a little bit and even defining that, although I think Laura had it really, really figured out. I gave like one or two little nuances, but, um, and so we became the first licensee, but I'm always take pride if you go to the TED site about how to build your TEDx logo, TEDx Austin becomes the example. Yeah. Um, but I will also say we weren't the very first one to produce one, right? I um, was the first to say jump on, but once they add kind of a framing for it, TEDx Columbus, uh, or sorry, TEDx uh, Columbus, Ohio did one, Atlanta did one. Um, several other people in the United States did one. So I was probably the ninth or 10th to actually produce one. Um, but yeah, I did 10 of them. I did four for adults. The thing that was interesting is I did four for adults and we had so many teenagers that wanted to come and attend and we restricted attendance at ours. We decided to build ours in a way that we restricted it to 500 or so people. And so we had all these teenagers who wanted to attend and we didn't have room for them. And so at some point I'm like, okay, if anybody wants to do a TEDx youth event, like let me know and I'll help you. And all of a sudden I got, you know, a couple of volunteers for that. And we started building a youth event. And one year I did both the adult event and the youth event and almost killed me. It's a lot of work to curate this really, really well. Right. And we're not doing it for pay and we're doing it for love. And um, it was too much to try and do too. So when I had to make a decision about which way I wanted to go, I decided the youth event was actually much more powerful for me. And, you know, again, there are the point where the aperture is much more open. I felt like with adults, they were coming partly because it was just a cool event to go to, but they weren't really going to change their minds versus teenagers every day are looking for guidance about how to make decisions in their life, right? Should they go to this school or that school? Should they take this class or that class? Should they join this club or that club? Like they're really open and they want guidance. And so it felt very inspiring to do an event for uh, high school and some middle school students so that we could help better them, help them feel more confident, better prepared for the future. And so I did six of those mentoring uh, high school students. So we did, we talked about it being youth led adult mentored. So that was also a really cool model about how to empower them to, you know, see through the decisions that they wanted to make. It was a very, uh, very, very fulfilling experience for a long time. I, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow this for my future TEDx event. Thank you for that. Sure. Now, I'm going to give you a choice. In the, in the, in the, in your future, you can only organize TEDx events or you can give keynotes. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I walked away from TEDx events and concentrated more on keynotes. So I think I made that decision. Okay. Right. Um, I miss the ability to design something and really pull a group of people together. I mean, I, I you know, the, the teenagers that were part of our program went on to Stanford, they went to Yale, they went to Harvard, they were really amazing students, but um, they will talk about that their time actually organizing these events was one of the most meaningful for them because they were given agency. Right. Yeah. So much we assume that kids can't do this yet. And then they, they would actually would get disappointed. They would go to some of these elite universities and given no power to go do something. And this was actually a way for them to really express what they felt was important across all the different domains, whether it wasn't just curating speakers. It was also logistics. It was finance. It was marketing. It was you know creative design. Like we empowered this little team to really take on these uh, extraordinary leadership or leader. And that's really leadering came a lot out of that. We used to do a leadering workshop every year before we started our next year's planning uh, to all get synced up and because we worked remotely. Like this whole idea about remote work, I think is so outdated. You know, we put on a, a really big event and maybe spent 60 hours together in the course of a year. We okay. meet every other week for two hours, right? Um, but all that work got done somehow brilliantly. And so we did a workshop at the beginning of the year to 
um, align us all and get the same framework around it. We had key values around it uh, that people all worked toward and, and committed to. And uh, I really loved being able to run that. It was a, um, a a really rich time in my life, but at some point you start to burn out, right? And one of the things that we had, it was like, you know, accountability, communication, and joy were our three values. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you can't, make sure you communicate with people and always do it from a place of of wanting to give, right? You're not doing this for your transcript or yeah. for your resume. You're not doing this because your mom wants you to do it. You're doing it because you really believe that this is something you want to put time and attention to. And toward the end, I started burning out and wasn't feeling that. I did one too many without joy. Okay. And I realized I needed to go find my joy. I think you provided a very nice segue to talk about leadering now. <laughs> So yeah. what? So leadering did that start at organizing the the, the aesthetics events, or was that? You no, know there's a, a person standing? named uh, Peter Van der Waer, who I think may have been actually from the Netherlands. He's somewhere from your part of the world, and uh, Peter once used the word leadering, and I thought, oh my god, it's a verb. It could be a verb. Like I love that idea, and I never really dug into Peter's definition of it, but I just sort of adopted it as a way of what I was trying to do was just to get people to think more fluidly, to get more collaboratively, to, to really think about things differently, to be more curious, just not to be so entrenched, to look more systemic. I think it was probably um, a placeholder word for me for systemic thinking or systems thinking, whatever you want to say, but being able to look at the whole more, being able to look at the light and the dark, like all those things that I think that uh, you know current uh, business thinking doesn't encourage you to do. And one of the things that was so frustrating for me as a consultant was we would come in and be asked these big questions, like how do we make sure that we ensure, yeah. I think you know, as a consultant, I would just get frustrated going into these organizations and being asked to like, we're trying to solve like a big, huge business problem. And we'd be able to come up with some really good in, uh, insight around it in our triangulating of culture, society, technology, and the trajectories that they were all pointing to. But then there would be this uh, this resistance to take in any new information. I was like, what is it with these people that they're so um, somehow, like you're just, again, they don't have the ability to absorb and respond to new information. Like what is causing that? And so I started looking at that, right? I'm a strategist at yeah. heart. That's really what I am. I'm like, okay, strategically, what would prevent someone from wanting to work in their own best interest, right? What would make it so that they really don't feel as if they can, so I was like, is it a capacity issue they can't take on anymore? Is it a confidence issue they feel like they can't learn something new? Like I was just really trying to figure out what it was. Um, and then you realize it's not so much on an individual level, it's on, a, on an organization or enterprise level. There are these incentives to not do those things. And so how can we rethink that? And so I felt like, okay, you know what? Leadership became, for me, the way that we were all taught to do things in the industrial era. Mm -hmm. And that there was a way that we were now need to rethink this as we're moving into a much more dynamic, I call it exponential productivity era. We're moving out of the industrial era to something that is going to look very, very different, has a very different physics, or even like if you want to say biology to it. Um, it's not a mechanical system anymore that we're trying to navigate to. So how do we rethink that? So for me, it became a way of being able to frame the difference, right? It was a contrast. If we can be in something that is a verb, it is dynamic and it's designed to be inclusive. It's designed to be um, you know, much more collaborative. It's designed to actually support constant learning and innovation as opposed to knock that out as something that is irrelevant um, and, and, and a threat, right? We actually want new information because new information gives us insight. It gives us an ability to sense and respond. Without new information, we actually wither and die. So how can we create a way of, of uh, working? And what we actually realized then is the reason we were successful in the consulting work that we were doing is we were bringing a leadering perspective to it, right? We were approaching it with leadering. And that was the part that was always so challenging with our clients because they wanted us to come in 
almost like an allopathic doctor, right? Like a traditional consultancy would, which is here's the slice of the problem. We're going to solve that problem. We're going to ignore all the pieces around it. And we're like, no, we're looking at the whole system. We're going to see how this is connected to this, is connected to this, is connected to this. And this is what makes the insight real. This is what makes the change possible. We work with Nestle Frozen Foods, one of my favorite examples, uh, to rethink uh, frozen food. But it wasn't about how do we get people to buy more. It's how do we rebuild trust in an industry that people lost trust as you saw income bifurcate. And so... Um, we were able to build a much more well-rounded solution. So we realized that the way that we were doing what we were doing was actually something that we could uh, make more visible to others. And so that's when leadering uh, became first of my talks. It was really the case for audacious leadering. How do we show up and play bigger? And yeah. then it became a book. And now it's become kind of the, um, the, the rally cry that I have about, you know, if we could just change the way we think, so much is possible as we move ahead. Okay. There are a couple of questions I have to ask. I can't ask them all at the same time. Uh, first question, um, where do you draw your inspiration from? You know, I mean, all over. Like I, I specifically wanted to do this interview down here in my living room because these words on the wall yeah. are yeah. that are the blueprint for me and for my children, right? They just came to me one day when I was out doing a, a walk in San Francisco before a talk. Yeah. And I started thinking about these words. I'm like, this is what I live by, right? Is it to be in a state of wonder, to be open to new things, to be curious and to be, uh, to recognize that there is just, you know, so much that can inspire us all around us, like just to be in that state of wonder and be in awe of it all, uh, to be grateful for the inspiration that that gives you um, and to be grateful for the people who can help you express it in some way, who can do something with it, right? And we don't do any of this work ever alone. You're inviting me to be part of this podcast, right? My team helps me do whatever. I mean, everything we do is in collaboration one way or another with others. So I'm really grateful that I can find those like-minded people uh, with which it is that we can go do that work. And then it is to go do something with it. It is, it is to act on it. It's not just to talk about it or to pontificate, but to go do something and then to repeat. So this idea that we're always in a state of, you know, again, of wonder, gratitude, action, and uh, recognizing it's a cycle, not a one-shot deal. So this is just sort of, you know, the way I live. Okay. And uh, yeah. So you get inspiration from what you do and the world around you. Yeah, I just think from 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 people, from the things that I read. You know, one of the things I get complimented on is how breadth wide my knowledge is about things. But you know what? I've also built a living, which I don't focus on so much of the other things that people focus on. I have this extraordinary um, privilege again, or ability, or not ability, but like meaning that my work is all focused on learning, right, and connecting. And then doing something with it versus I don't have to worry about PLs all day long. I don't have to worry about supply chain issues. I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, performance reviews for hundreds of people. I'm not, you know, I'm just that that's all really important work, but it's work that sometimes takes you away from being able to do the things that I do. So I want to work, work which uh, has, is relevant in a particular environment. Uh, a friend of mine and I, we both. Uh, quit our jobs. He was working for a very large corporate and we were going independent. And about a year later, he asked, so how are your KPIs? And I started to laugh. I could not stop laughing. Because he, right? you know, this is a question which you ask when you work for a corporate. This is not a question you should ask uh, if you are working independent. And it took him a little, I mean, he's been working for corporates for 30 years. So I understand where it came from. But at the end of the day, we could both laugh about it. It's an interesting question because I just had a conversation early this morning with someone that I care care very deeply for, but it's in the middle of a transition between two two visions, right? One is 
um, this entrepreneurial inspiration visionary group that just bought basically a much bigger organization. And so the buyers are thinking in terms of vision and inspiration and wanting to grow 10x. And they've got this like very powerful um, perspective. And the team that they're basically trying to inspire just wants to know what are the numbers? What are the numbers we're trying to hit? What are the numbers that we're trying to do? Whatever. And they're speaking just such different languages right now. And there's this clash between the two. And both are frustrated, unfortunately, with the other until they can figure out how to break through that. So I do think there are very, very different languages that we speak inside these two different systems. And I'm very grateful to be in my world where, you know, my KPI, yeah, we do. I I need to make, I have to make payroll, right? I've got two people who work for me and I've got a mortgage to pay for, but we, we really aren't oriented to that goal. We are completely oriented to the impact that we want to make and the, um, the story that we want to inspire other people to, to be. And there's a lot of work that we do that we don't get paid anything for. And this is why I think the whole concept of work, I'll just say quickly, we also talk about work as this thing that we expend energy to be paid for by somebody else and they determine what the value of that is. I think work is about the expression of my curiosity, my talents, you know, the things that I think matter on the planet. Um, I have seven roles on the planet, only two of which are paid. Right. TEDx, I didn't get paid for being a mom. I didn't get paid for doing a podcast. I didn't get paid for we're doing now. We, I, we switched it from TEDx to uh, career fair for the future because we wanted to create a, an event for college kids that would inspire them about the future. We don't do any of that for money. Like, you know, we do the Fem Futurist Institute or Fem Future Society, not because we get paid, but because we get inspired by being able to talk to other smart futurists around the world and re- elevate the profile of and women that should be more known. Um, so you think about you know, what it is and that feeds the other work, right? Because I do that, people see me then as someone that they can trust to go and do a consulting gig for them or a speaking gig yeah. for them. So it's not like that doesn't have value economically, but that's not why we're doing it. Yeah. Um, so it's looking at the whole yeah. thing. And so yeah. I think that we just have a different way of measuring our productivity and success. Yeah. I, I, I relate that to what I do. Uh, when I get paid, I want to get paid. First of all, uh, do I think it's worthwhile do I want to spend my time on it? Because I can re-earn money. I cannot re-earn time. Uh, will it provide me new exposure? Uh, will it provide me connections? Will it satisfy my curiosity? A way in the end is, will it be paid for Paid for it? At the end, of the, those first things are more relevant than, you could totally. say, the bottom line. Because uh, totally. that's a hygiene factor. Now, well, even uh, you said, like, how do we pick clients at the beginning? Part of it is what can we learn from the yeah. experience? Not just what we can give to it, but what is it that we'll learn by doing that assignment and spending our time there versus the choice of having to spend our time over here. We have to make choices about what we want to do. And so where's our you know, time best spent? Okay. So uh, Nancy, when you look at uh, leadering, is it the same people learning new skills or are we talking about replacing people with new people? No, no, no. It's, new, it's, 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 it's all of us learning a new way of okay. being able to navigate our way through. I talk about we're moving away from being replicators, which is what, you know, I'm 58 years old. I was taught to be a navigator. I mean, sorry, a replicator. Like this is how we do things and we get more and more efficient as we do them. And now we're learning to be navigators with new information coming in all the time. And we have to make new decisions about it and often having to figure things out that have never been figured out before. Right. My oldest son just joined an aerospace company yesterday was his first day. He left Lockheed Martin and now he's working for um, Aero, Firefly Aerospace. But they're basically sending rockets, uh, mid-sized rockets into space with payload. They sent one successful rocket in so far. They're not going to send six next year. They haven't done it before. They haven't done it with payloads of six you know, satellites before. They're going to figure all of that stuff out. So to be in a place where you feel confident about that, as opposed to just how can I more efficiently send the same rocket up for the 150th time? You know, that's just not the space that we're in right now. No pun intended. Okay. Um, when you when you describe these examples, what what makes you tick? Uh, 
I do have to ask you, what does success mean for you in this case? Uh, for me, I really do feel as though I'm creating, I'm using my resources, all that I am to create the most positive impact that I can yeah. for as many people as I can. And for me, I really, I'm here. I became really clear one day that my role on the planet is to assure a safe and thriving future for as many, for everyone. Right. But it's not my job to do it alone for a while. I had this like crazy, you know, uh, omnipotence, uh, whatever yeah. <laughs> uh, thing that felt like it was all my work to do. Yeah. You know, like I can't do enough. Like I can't make this happen fast enough. I can't get people turned on about sustainability fast enough. I can't get people to think about fairness fast enough. I can't get people to think about resources fast enough. Um, I uh, was told that if I keep doing that, my adrenals will burn out and I need to take it a little bit uh, more graciously. And so I think I am also at the point now we're all in our own time trying to get there. Uh, so how can we be uh, an accelerant for the good without feeling mm -hmm. as though we are not doing enough fast enough. So uh, sound advice. Uh, so that also lis listen to your own body, listen to your own uh, because mental state of mind. Uh, well, understand why body. you're doing it, right? Yeah. There's a part of me that yeah. I felt really guilty for all the good yeah. that I had in my world. And I was taught, you know what, running around with a sense of feeling like, because I think this is actually a, re a real thing, Fritz. As we see the world becoming more and more divided between those people who are very successful and have a handle on the future and feel like they're a part of it, whether it's financial or intellectual, and those who feel increasingly left out of it, whether it's for climate change reasons or technological mm -hmm. change reasons, like you're going to see more and more split. And so you, you, I do feel a responsibility to, if I have this much of both insight and privilege to try and make it better for the rest, right? And if the rest are falling further behind, that does feel like a greater weight for us to carry to some extent, right? So I'm really trying to navigate that in a way that I can hold it well, not feel an incredible, like overwhelming sense of either guilt or um, uh, expectation, right? That I can bring joy into the work that I do. I don't get burdened with it, but I really do think that there's some important work that we do need to do and we need to step into it. So we need to um, recognize it's important that we show up. Because the world is changing around us. The world is changing. And it, again, has this opportunity to be an extraordinary future. We get this, again, a once in a generation opportunity to redesign, reshape, rethink education, finance, manufacturing, food, uh, you know, name it. Everything around us will be reconstructed and redesigned in one way or another, which I find very, very inspiring because I didn't think it worked so well for everybody in the past, right? There are a lot of people who were left out of those systems and they were, uh, you know, outdated and kind of past their prime, if you will. Um, so how can we redesign that in a way that actually holds people really well as an amazing opportunity, but we have to step into it. If we keep bringing an outdated industrial way of thinking to these new exponential uh, technologies and opportunities, I think we're going to make it worse rather than more than better, right? And so I look at something like Meta as an example of you can't bring outdated thinking to all the power that we're being gifted. One last question then, Nancy, is, because um, I'd be interested to know what your advice is to young managers starting their own journey in a world which is changing as the way you just described it. Well, you know, again, I've got these wonderful three people in my world. I've got my children that are 19, 22, and 25. And so I this is partly how they've been raised, right, um, is to show up and be of service. Like you want them to go into an environment and know that they can learn from it and that they can contribute a lot to it, but they can also impact it, right? The choices that they make are important. You know, my son left Lockheed because he felt like he wasn't making the impact that he wanted to make and and. and an organization that was just so behemoth and really having a hard time ever moving forward and just moving way too slowly. And he went to something where he thinks that he can have a, uh, a greater sense of, of contribution and do something he's more proud of. So I do think 
um, aligning your work with who you are is really critical and being in an environment that supports that, but not being like, so, you know, uh, snowflakey that if it's not like so perfect that you have to leave, you know, the minute that you have to work overtime for an hour or you disagree with your manager or, you know, a, a, a colleague, you know, uh, somehow makes you angry. I think that we have to build some resilience into our way of thinking and into what we do, but come at it from a real place of privilege. Like you should be excited about the work that you get to go do and what you get to go learn from it and what you get to contribute to it. So find a place that that does that for you. Hey, that's a good uh, remark to end on because uh, I'm excited. I've had the opportunity to talk to you, Nancy, about your, what you're doing, how you approach it, your advice to the people out there. Uh, for now, um, it was a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you, and let's hopefully we can do good and repeat this uh, soon in the future. I appreciate your patience with some of my little tech and dog glitches, but it's such a privilege to talk to you too. And thank you for including me in such an amazing lineup. This is amazing work that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.